You're listening to episode 153 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchabor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, guest lecturer and professor of ministerial studies at Divine Hope Reformed Bible Seminary, Reverend Paul Ipema, gives us a timely word on Christian counseling and a word of advice for those studying in seminary seeking to enter the world of pastoral ministry and counseling someday. What I'm going to do as I navigate through this topic this afternoon with you is to talk really about three things. First, I'm going to talk along uh, an autobiographical line in terms of my own experience in the ministry. Some of you, especially who have done summer assignments, can relate to some of this. Some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about until uh, much later in your uh, seminary career and your ministry. Then I'd like to talk about the concept of the cure of souls uh, as we have understood it historically and how we ought to reclaim that uh, tradition in the church today as we understand it relating to the work of pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is about the cure of souls. And I think there needs to be clarity and there needs to be uh, commitment and enthusiasm uh, for that sort of work as we uh, proceed in ministry. And then finally, I'm going to give you a, a couple of examples uh, of how this can play out in terms of preaching and also in terms of spiritual guidance or spiritual direction. As uh, Dr. Beach mentioned, I graduated from Mid-America Reform Seminary 30 years ago, and several of the professors I had are still with us. Uh, I'll just mark that, I'll note that. I'm not going to name who they are, but you know who they are. Um, And I I will just say this, that, and I've said this to some of you in class already, um, I think that the education you're getting now is, is superb, and it was a blessing to be a student at Mid-America, but I think even more so as the seminary and the faculty has developed over time. Uh, I remember, if I can use our president as an example, uh, back in 89 when I first started, Dr. Venema would always remind the students that he would apologize for not having a syllabus completed yet. He was going to work on the syllabus, but I assume by this point all the syllabi are finished? No, I'm seeing no. Okay. (laughs) So there's more work yet to be done. Um, But in that time at seminary, I had two courses in pastoral care and counseling. That was not unusual and still I don't think is unusual uh, among Reformed or evangelical seminaries. Uh, Maybe now it's more specialized in certain institutions, but two classes. And that was going to prepare me uh, for ministry. Uh, Was that enough? Now, when I look at my uh, seminary education, both at Mid-America and later on at Calvin Theological Seminary, I could say this. I think the expectation is not that you're going to have everything you'll possibly need for the ministry by the time you finish school. So if that's what you're thinking, those of you who are students, if you're thinking that you're going to have everything you need to be equipped for ministry, every, every conceivable situation, guess again. Uh, There are many things you're going to simply have to learn by way of experience. And you're going to have to learn how to develop your own skills by the Spirit's guidance with the Lord's blessing and in your own maturity uh, as an individual and as a pastor. Um, My experience in the seminary internships I experienced was varied. The first summer assignment I had, 23 years old, just got married, 
Uh, in fact, it was a week after my wedding that I started my summer assignment, and uh, I was serving a church that was without a pastor. Uh, little did I know at the time, initially, that the pastor, the previous pastor, had been dismissed from that church. So there was a lot of strife, there was a lot of pain, a lot of hurting. And here I was, a 23-year-old, being asked to lead not only council meetings, but elders' meetings, being asked to do all the visitation, being asked to preach twice on a Lord's Day throughout the whole summer. So I had all that working to my advantage as I began my summer assignment. So when I began, uh, really a lot of it was simply learning by trial and error. But when I look back upon it, there were many things I simply was not prepared to deal with. You know, how do you go about doing visitation? I had no one to show me. The elders didn't really show me. They said, here, here are some people you can visit. Now go visit them. How do you talk to people? How do you engage in a conversation that's meant to, to lift them up, to edify them spiritually, to address whatever it is they're wrestling with in their faith? And I say with some embarrassment that there was a gentleman I knew nothing about in the congregation. No one had told me that he was dying of cancer, so I took the initiative and visited him. I visited him in his home, and uh, subsequently, I think within a couple of months, he passed away. But nobody told me, how do I do this work? And I felt really that there was a great deal that I still had to learn, and why hadn't I been shown how to do that? I didn't really blame the, uh, the seminary on that. I, I thought maybe I was, it was unwise of me to select a church that did not have a pastor. So my second uh, internship and my year-long internship were quite the opposite experience. Um, and there I was blessed with serving with a, a pastor who was just retired and who had a, a real um, desire to nurture and to mentor uh, young men in the ministry. He, uh, I think, had aspirations towards teaching perhaps many years before. And he took me under his wing and took me on his visits, took me to hospital visits, took me to home visits, nursing home visits. I learned how to talk to people and have those kind of pastoral conversations uh, during those visits. I, I learned how to pray with people. I learned what passages to read that were edifying to them in those situations. And, and it was a blessing to work with him. I, I'm often reminded of uh, what St. Augustine said about um, Ambrose of Milan in terms of what appealed to him about Ambrose. He said it really wasn't uh, how learned he was, how eloquent he was, but that he was kind. And I always thought about that. I, to this day, in fact, I told his children that uh, after he had passed away, I said, he treated me, he loved me like I was his son. And it was that kindness in mentoring that played such an important role for me in shaping uh, my understanding of ministry. He was very much old school in the sense of, uh, you drop whatever you're doing if there's a pastoral need that arises. I think that today has gone out of style for many pastors. They keep very strict hours and you don't bother them during those hours that they have off from their pastoral work. He taught me that when there's a need, you go, you visit, you, uh, you meet with people where they're at. And I appreciated very much his many years of experience. So seminary provides the basic tools, and I think your professors will agree with me that in many ways they're simply pushing you in the right direction, but ultimately it rests upon you 
to continue that process, to be engaged in learning as you go along, to be reading. They can show you what to read, who to read, um, but ultimately you have to continue to develop those skills yourself. Uh, you are not a finished product, in other words, when you finish seminary. And uh, if it scares you to death, what I'm telling you, it ought to, to a certain extent. You ought to be nervous about that because it is a, a great and a, a mighty calling. And it requires uh, a very careful attention to what God requires of his shepherds. Let me tell you a little bit about my experience with uh, seminary professors in the field of pastoral care and counseling. Um, my professor at Mid-America who taught pastoral care and counseling uh, was uh, someone who followed the teachings of Jay Adams. We were assigned his books, and uh, we were taught what many of you know as neuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. Um, you know, was that sufficient? I appreciate very much the fact that that emphasis at Mid-America at that time was uh, to the commitment that pastors are competent to counsel as Jay Adams said in his book, that it is not the special preserve of the, of the therapist, of the psychologist, but it is, it is the responsibility of a pastor. In fact, every believer equipped with the Bible is competent to some extent to counsel. And I'm very fond of uh, David Paulison, who I'll sp speak of uh, later on, David Paulison, who defined in its broadest sense counseling as learning how to love others well. I think that's what counseling is, learning how to love others well. But how well did this work in the ministry? Did we resort to proof texting when we had conversations, throwing a text in here, throwing a text in here, there in a conversation? I think sometimes the dangers of newthetic counseling is that scripture is used like a, like a club to bludgeon people into submission or to correct them. I, I think, for example, of an experience I had a number of years ago at a classes meeting, and I think I can share this with you. We were discussing matters of a disciplinary nature, and um, it, it involved a couple where the wife had made the accusation that her husband at least was verbally abusive to her and shared that with the elders. She wanted them to intervene in the marriage. They want, she wanted counsel, advice. She wanted them to speak to her husband. So the elders came to the home. Do you know what passage they read to her? Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And I think all of us who were there as delegates were gasping as we heard that. Again, not that the text was, was untrue, but it was not applicable in that particular situation. It was not handled very deftly. Um, I've seen that happen time and time again. It can be heavy-handed. It can even be counterproductive. I remember a biblical counselor who was a friend of mine uh, counseling a couple in our church, and uh, there had been a case of infidelity. And basically, the counseling session gravitated from dealing with the husband and his adultery to the wife and basically getting after her week after week after week about forgiveness. You need to forgive. You need to forgive. And I think looking back on that, there was a insensitivity to the fact that, yes, there is the promise in forgiveness that you will not hold this against the person. But forgiveness is also a process that takes time. And I think that insensitivity was counterproductive in that couple's case. Now, that's one experience in seminary. The other experience I had at Calvin Seminary, which, again, some of the professors may have shared this as well, 
is having a, a professor of pastoral care and counseling whose basic philosophy was, you don't have the time, nor do you have the expertise to do the work of pastoral counseling, so your job is simply to refer them to a Christian counselor or some kind of therapist, which I always thought was ironic. Here you are, a professor of pastoral care and counseling, telling minister, uh, would-be ministers, future ministers, that they're not equipped to do that work, so pass it along to someone else. You might as well try your hand at brain surgery, in other words, was the mentality of this professor. You're not equipped to handle it. But what if there are no counselors? What if you are in a part of the country where those kind of resources are not available? Then what do you do? Or, as I've experienced, what do you do if you refer people to a, a biblical counselor but, or a Christian counselor, and yet their theological convictions are quite different than your own? I'll give you an example. Uh, imagine counseling a couple who are dealing with marital problems, and the counselor says to them, well, if you want to get a legal separation, I'll help you through that. If you want to get a divorce, I'll help you through that. If you want to keep the marriage together, I'll help you with that as well. We call that what? Non-directive or client-directive counseling. Quite the opposite, isn't it, of nuthetic counseling? Nuthetic counseling is, you know, in a way, confrontational. The Word of God calls you to repent, to believe, to obey. And non-directive counseling says, I'll help steer you in whatever direction you want to go. Not very helpful, is it? Uh, one other example, I was counseling a young man from the congregation I was serving who was dealing with serious depression issues. And um, I talked to a Christian counselor he had been working with who was very cordial, very helpful, but had recommended that I continue working through the book they were working with together. So I got a copy of it, and it was full of self-esteem theology, that the problem was this person did not esteem themselves highly enough. So how do you pick up on that and try to counsel in a way that you believe is faithful to Scripture? Uh, it's very frustrating, in other words, even when you have people who call themselves Christian counselors. Well, my experience was frustrating. My experience was I felt a, a deficiency in terms of my own abilities, my own skills, my own qualifications. And then I met uh, Dr. David Paulison. In uh, 2001, uh, he was the keynote speaker at the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors in Minneapolis, associated with Desiring God Ministries. And I had read some of Paulison's works before, um, but it was like a, a whole new avenue had been opened up to me. Um, there was both profound encouragement from his message. He talked about the care of souls. In, a past, in the work of pastoral ministry, but there was also tremendous disappointment. Let me explain what I mean by that. I was greatly encouraged by the fact that he emphasized the fact that we should not, as pastors, be discouraged when there is only gradual, incremental change as we counsel people, as we pastor people, because that's often the typical way in which people progress in their sanctification. He talked about taking baby steps. He used the illustration of a, of a child's nightlight, how that little tiny bulb shining its light at night 
can make all the difference for a child, whether they can sleep at night or whether they're terrified, right? And I thought about that, and I thought, what a wonderful way to look at counseling. He talked about the complexities of the people he counseled, um, people who are broken, people who are hurting, people who are confused, misguided, people who are stubborn in their insistence on doing things that are ultimately self-destructive, and how the gospel speaks to that, how the gospel offers real hope. I was greatly encouraged, but I was also discouraged. you know why? I was discouraged because as I was listening to him, I thought, you know, how impatient I was more than anything else as a pastor. And that's part of my, my personality, my nature, is that I get impatient with people. Why aren't you progressing the way I think you ought to progress? Why do I got to still spend time with you, counseling you, working with you? Why aren't you doing what the elders and what I have been calling you to do? Whereas being more patient and loving, walking with them, uh, was the imagery that stuck with me. Uh, Dr. Winston St- uh, Smith, who used to teach at CCF, uses a very helpful analogy. He said, uh, pastoral counseling is, is not like the mechanic. The mechanic, he gets a car that has something broken, he fixes it, sends it off. He's done with it. He says, that's not the nature of ministerial pastoral counseling. He says, think of it as a gardener who continually tends to the to the garden, nurturing, cultivating, feeding, watching over it. He says that's how you ought to view that relationship, that you walk alongside of people. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. But it addressed my pastoral deficiencies, or at least exposed them. Um, But here was the dilemma I faced. In the pastorate, and again, I don't want to... I don't want to scare you, but I want to be realistic with you. The pastorate can be a place where you have to do things on the fly. Just to give you an example, my schedule this week, in addition to teaching 160 students this semester at Danville Prison, I'm giving this presentation today. I got a phone call on Sunday. I got to do a funeral tomorrow morning, and I got to preach at my own church on Sunday, two sermons, all that in a typical week. So how do you juggle all those things? It's like, or it's like the guy that has to spin 10 plates at the same time without having them come crashing down. It reminds me, if you're old enough to remember the uh, TV sitcom MASH, uh, you know, taking place in the uh, Korean War, the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. You have the, the uh, surgeons working on these, these wounded soldiers, and along comes... Major Winchester, Charles Emerson Winchester III, from a Boston family, very, very renowned surgeon. He's sent out to the front line to do surgery. He's doing his first surgery there in the tent, and he's showing the other doctors, the other surgeons, all the latest techniques for doing these surgeries. And, and his suturing is like a work of art. And then the other doctors say, but you know, Major Winchester, you can't do surgery that way. This is meatball surgery. You've got to sew it up and move it on. And I've often thought that's very much what the experience is in the pastorate. It's the good, the bad, the ugly, if I may share that with you. You better be prepared for that. That will happen to you. Not everyone has the luxury of being able to work on the nice points of, of your, the fine points of your sermon and, and to take time to read all the things you want to read. 
Sometimes you simply have to crank the things out. You have to make the visits. You have to conduct the funeral. You have to attend to people's needs. And I would say, sadly, in addition to that, I found that in many cases, uh, doing pastoral counseling came at the 11th hour in the crisis, particularly with marriage counseling. Um, I say with great sadness, profound sadness, uh, one of the great regrets of 30 years of ministry is that the vast majority of people who have had serious marital problems do not come to the elders or to the pastor until it's too late. I've even had it, and I say with some embarrassment, I've had it where people have told the elders, we don't want the pastor involved in this. Why? Because they know what the pastor is going to say. They know what the pastor is going to say, that unless you have a biblical reason for divorce, you've got no business considering divorce. They don't want to hear that. So I study at CF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, which really was a, uh, a profound point in my ministry, changing my perspective, not only on counseling, but on ministry in general, and even upon my preaching. And in fact, I've had people say that. And people have said that since I've been at Divine Hope Seminary, my preaching has changed. I do counseling there as well, but that's also on the fly in a very limited way. I teach, of course, but you understand you're teaching to men who, many of whom have never finished high school. Some have never finished grade school. So you can't talk to them about the fine points of theology when they have all they can do to write the English language. Okay, So sometimes you have to accommodate yourself to where people are at. That's the nature of ministry, isn't it? And so I counsel. I'll give you an example from yesterday. I counseled a young man who is probably around 40. He's divorced. He has a 13-year-old son who sent him a letter. He showed me the letter. And the son said in the letter, Father, in all my life I've never known you. I've never seen you outside of prison. Your choices have ruined your life and they've ruined my life. I want nothing more to do with you. He shows me the letter and says, now what do I do, professor? Well, I'm not just an academic instructor, am I? I'm there to give guidance. I'm there to get counseling. In fact, I consider that to be probably a more pressing need in that environment than what I'm going to teach that day in class. Tune in next week as Reverend Paul Ipema elaborates on what he means by reclaiming the cure of souls in an age of pastoral confusion and how that relates to not only preaching, but to spiritual guidance and direction. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.